I never really know what shape the youth group in this church is going to take. Year after year after year, an amazing group of teenagers. And it's always a little bit different, but it's always pretty terrific. And anyone who hangs around with our group knows what I'm talking about. Let me tell you a story about one of the great highlights of my time in youth ministry here at this church. Quite a few years ago now, we were on a really long bus ride. We had already made our way down to Calgary, and we were making a a one-shot bus ride from Calgary to Winnipeg. And I made the group an offer while we were on that trip. Do you have any questions for me? And I promise you, no matter how big a stumper you think it is, you can introduce any topic you like, with if it's weird or if it's embarrassing, we'll dig into it. So together, in the belly of a really old coach bus, we took a ride of more than 15 hours, and they didn't even let us out of the bus for as much as a Snickers break. And despite the constant drone of the diesel engines and the worn-out seats, and the abiding stench of a very full chemical toilet. (laughs) Just ask anyone who was on that trip. We had a really special time together. It was a unique kind of journey we were taking together, covering a lot of ground. And in that time, I did field a lot of questions. Theological concepts and questions about sex relationships, life in general, the nature of evil and the church, and the end of days. We talked about the difficult and weird parts of the Bible. Now, One of the really smart, really curious teenagers at one point asked me, so what about Jonah? It all seems like sort of a fairy tale, and do I really need to believe that whole story? And I thought, wow, this is it. We're in for a long conversation about the Bible here. So I said, okay, for starters, if you could find some sort of scientific or archaeological evidence to back up the fantastic claims of a historical book of Jonah, would that be helpful to you? And she said, uh, sure, I, I guess. But I said, what if you found out that the Jonah story wasn't a telling of history, but a sort of ancient parable, a a deeply true story of Jonah, the anti-prophet, a story of God and humanity and grace that surrounds us all. That, That would be okay too, right? And all she said was, okay, yeah, I'm actually really good with that. And then she moved right on to her next questions and comments about the nature of the origin and the story of the devil. Like I said, that bus ride to Winnipeg was a special kind of journey that we were all taking together. For centuries now, though, the Jonah story and those who read it with attention have been offered a wealth of timeless wit and wisdom and theological genius with humor and insight and an economy of language and artful execution 
We miss out on this brilliant little book and all of its 48 verses if we let it just be a children's story about obedience or a bit of Bible trivia, a conundrum about the survivability of a person swallowed and partially digested by a sea creature. That's because this little gem of a book is a primordial sort of God's story with a deeply true message that every faith community in every time and place urgently needs to hear and absorb, even as it continues to shock and terrify us sometimes. For my money, the little book of Jonah is one of the most important writings in all of Scripture. So in these next four weeks, I hope that we can read and hear the prophet Jonah's story with freshness and receptivity. May we open our hearts to the possibility that this story, in this story, this spirit might quicken our hearts, challenge our assumptions, and awaken our holy imaginations. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you've read any of the other prophets in the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with this formula. A nation somewhere is in really big trouble, and it's the prophet's job to pronounce God's judgment like, say, the prophet Nahum, who got to write a very stern letter against the the city Nineveh. Jonah, whose name actually means dove, by the way, gets instructed to actually go to the great city, a thousand kilometers away, far behind enemy lines. Nineveh? Where exactly was Jonah being sent? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And on a list of the great kingdoms of the world, Assyria is right there at the beginning. Before Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or Charlemagne, or Queen Victoria. Like all the other world-dominating projects, the Assyrians exploited new ways of expanding their holdings. Using infrastructure and a trade language, models of efficiency and innovation, and overwhelming, merciless military force. Raw, absolute, devastating power. The Assyrians amassed plunder and conquered nations, including the northern kingdom of Israel. And along the way, while you're doing all that empire and plundering, there are people who are forcibly removed or absorbed were captured, taken as slaves, taxed, tortured. All of the predictable brutality of a heartless system, enacting unspeakable terrors in the name of progress, prosperity, the economy, resource extraction, and national pride. In the ancient world, Even well after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, when ancient people were arguing on the internet, when they really wanted to make their point about how something was unthinkably evil, 
They would make reference, a sort of cultural shorthand, to the vicious reputation of the Assyrian Empire's brutal realm. He's being such an Assyrian right now. We do the same thing these days, of course, with our own names and nations who stand for us as examples of unthinkable evil. So the call is, speak the word of the Lord in the midst of people like this. This is a terrible assignment beyond belief, really. And so Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because this is the story, of course, of the anti-prophet. And so the newly retired ex-prophet made his way to the coast of the Mediterranean, seeking to buy passage on a ship, headed for the furthest and strangest, most distant land they could take him to. Are there any boats to Timbuktu or Albuquerque or Moose Jaw, maybe? And they're like, uh, have you heard of Tarshish? Tarshish? Yeah, it's this city way over here on the edge of the map, right next to the National Geographic logo and the little drawings of sea creatures and dragons. Sounds perfect. Take me to Tarshish, baby. In Jonah's mind, maybe in a far-off place, he can forget all about being a prophet. Tormented by God's call. Filled with the breath of the Spirit, the mouthpiece of the Lord. This is too much. God asks too much of him. Instead, he can blend right in with the scenery. He can learn a new language and start being just an ordinary sort of nobody. Jonah sails for Tarshish. The first book of the whole Bible, or the first verse of the whole Bible starts like this. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And this same wind of creation blows on the waters of the Jonah story. Because this fugitive prophet cannot escape the tireless pursuit of his creator. The atmosphere and the waters conspire against him. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. And here the story introduces us to the best crew of sailors that you would ever want to take a trip with. Really, I want to know everything about these chaps, these hardy folk. Have you ever worked with a crew or a team of people like this? I feel like I know them a little bit. They were professional, they were hardworking, they were considerate, and they were kind and generous souls. The wind blows and the waves batter the ship and the mariners struggle to keep the boat afloat. And the mouthpiece of the Lord is asleep, practically dead to the world in the hold of the ship. In contrast to our sleeping prophet, the pagan sailors are praying, crying out to the sorts of sea gods that sailors pray to. Protect us, sir, sir. 
Save our ship, O great Melquart. Hold us close, Mother Namu. The ship's captain can't believe what he's seeing. He has to go to the hold of the boat and wake Jonah up. It's almost as though this man doesn't have a care in the world. Now is the time to pray, man. The ship is going to go down. And it's really embarrassing. But Jonah lets his friends on the boat go through this ridiculous charade, casting lots, looking for a sign from the heavens. And predictably, when his number comes up, the prophet Jonah finally comes clean. Here's your problem pointing at himself. You've got a runaway prophet on board. And these unsuspecting sailors had no idea that they were carrying such dangerous cargo. Hold on, Jonah, my boy. (laughs) You're telling us that this isn't just a seasonal squall or a bit of bad weather? This is a divine thing? You're running away from your vocation? Your calling? You're running away from your God? And we are about to become collateral damage because your failure to be the oracle of the Hebrew God. Do we have this straight? The captain and the crew look on in fear. Jonah has a simple solution. Pick me up and throw me in the water, and that'll settle things down. That'll be the end of the matter, the end of the storm. And if Jonah can't run, he can really blend in with the scenery this time and start being an ordinary bit of nothing at all on the bottom of the sea. Finally, Jonah's escape would be complete. Check and mate Jonah. Thank you very much. But these remarkable sailors, these strangers, they don't give up on Jonah even though he'd given up on himself. Digging in their oars to the water, they struggle for sure. But this is a futile effort. And they finally pray, but this time, they pray to Jonah's God. Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. But when their arms are tired and they can row no more, they finally pick the prophet up and throw him into the sea. And just like he said, the wind dies down and the sea ceases its raging. As Jonah sinks beneath the waves, the captain and the shipmates look to one another. They have made a terrible sort of offering a human sacrifice to the God of the sea and the wind. And as the sun comes up, a holy awe falls over the crew. And Jonah doesn't struggle. He won't swim for it, and he won't try and hold on to a bit of debris. He lets the water take him. It's better this way. Finally, at last, free from the pestering voice of God. It's not Tarshish, but the inky depths should do the trick nicely. 
Nineveh can take care of itself. Like and subscribe for part two. Always quotable, Chesterton famously said, not only are we all in the same boat, but we are all seasick. All of us, the whole family of the human race is navigating turbulent seas, always. Steering into waves when we can, rowing as hard as we can. Or just holding on to whatever seems to be the most secure. On our knees, praying, but sometimes rolling the dice. Pleading with our maker, often jettisoning precious, precious cargo. Lightening the load, making sacrifices. And often enough, it's the religious folk who are asleep in the bottom of the ship. Passengers on this small planet, we are all connected by air and sea and breath and water, connected by the earth beneath our feet and the viruses and microorganisms that we pass along to one another every day. And no matter where we go, we find people who are known and loved by their maker. Sometimes we call these people acquaintances. If we're lucky, we get to call them friends. Often, though, we know them as enemies. We speak of them as monsters. But the truth is, God's people are called to speak words of truth, declarations of hope and peace, dangerous words sometimes. We are told to share the promise of God's persistent love and grace for all people. We are called to confront the people that we hate and fear in our hearts. Sorry, let me say that again. We are called to confront the hate and fear we find in our hearts. And name the ways that we ourselves are in need of so much mercy. And I'll say it, this is at times a difficult and strange and terrifying calling we are named for. Too much for us sometimes. Too much for anyone. Overwhelming even. What a gift then to know that the spirit of creation is our companion. The purposes of God are never spent. The mercies of God follow us to every place, even the darkest of places. Surrounding us, guiding and tending to our stubborn hearts. Who knows what strange shape grace might take when it swallows us up and carries us to places we never dreamed of. Thanks be to God.